You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to begin by calling in the spirits to join us here today. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine, to all of those people who lived well and died well and bring to us the legacy of all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines. I call out to those people who understood that it is the way that we live each day that makes us either an expression of our true and conscious beliefs in the world or makes us actually an expression of those things which would choose to use us to their own ends and that the power that each of us possesses is and it is always in action and the question is are you the one using it? And I call out in particular to those ancestors who understood it is necessary to choose how to live so that we can shape the life that we want to live with our very choices, our very actions, with our very way that we choose to be in the world. And I call out to these ancestors to be with us here today at this time on the planet when the old story is dying kicking and screaming and trying to drag us with it. And those who are alive today are crafting the new story. So we call out to those ancestors who, are, who were alive at a similar time. Many worlds have ended and many new worlds have been born. And we call out to those ancestors to be with us here today, to give us strength and courage to do what we know is right, to do what we know must be done, so that we can create a way that is not only good for all living things, but good for the life that is coming. So we call out to these ancestors and give thanks for their presence here today. We ask them to circle around and to hold us well and to help us to be uh, powerful and heartfelt in our task of living this day. And so with that task firmly in mind and heart, let us move our awareness from our head to our heart and our heart to our belly and from our belly deep down into the earth. And let us take a moment in this day to stop and to give thanks, to give thanks for life, to give thanks for that great blessing, and to give thanks for the miracle of life. We certainly know where babies come from, but we don't yet understand life itself, where it comes from. So we give thanks for that wonder and that miracle and the great mystery that is inherent in all things. And with enormous gratitude in our hearts for the earth itself, We send our energy down through all the layers of the earth to the very, very center of the earth and take a moment to connect here with this energy that restores, rejuvenates, and replenishes with this energy that gives us our sense of where we stand in life and our sense of having a place to stand and things to be willing to stand up for. So we give thanks to the energy of the earth and as we draw the energy of the earth up, 
up through all the layers of the earth into our body, into our belly and our heart and our mind, we draw the energy of the earth up and bring into our bodies the wisdom of manifestation, how to be here in form in a good way. And may we use this energy to create in our day a sense of groundedness, a sense of place and home and belonging that is not tied to one house or one nation, but is connected to this globe and goes with you wherever you are. And we call out to the earth to help us to cultivate a sense of belonging that we can take with us, that gives us a sense of peace and a sense of openness to those who are different from us. And we call out to the earth and we hope to use this earth energy to wake up to our sense of connection with ourselves, with our environment, with each other, with the invisible world. And we give thanks to the energy of the earth for the wonder of her dreaming that has created this great web of life here on earth. And may we extend with the assistance of the earth energy into that web of life and know our place in the great oneness of all things and take a moment to feel that oneness and come into right relationship with ourself, right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment and right relationship with the invisible world. And with our sense of place here, grounded on earth, let us reach up from our belly to our heart and our heart to our mind, out through the sky above, whatever weather it holds for you in this day, out through the atmosphere and all the way up and out into the cosmos. Take a moment and allow yourself to caress and be caressed by all the heavenly bodies and the wonders of the universe, reaching all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you know this power, name it, know it. See yourself reflected in it and it reflected in you and call this energy from above down. Call it down into your body, into your day, into these proceedings, drawing into yourself the energy of blessing, the profound, abundant energy of blessing. Draw into yourself the energy of protection, the energy of generosity and benevolence and the beneficence of this universe. We call these energies in. And draw them into ourselves that we may find within ourselves devotion and precision and excellence and use these energies to bring our true gifts into the world. And as we draw the energy of above down into our head and heart and belly, let us take a moment and imagine the meeting within ourselves of these two great lovers, heaven and earth, yin and yang, coming together within us, these two great lovers. And let that love, this big love, call forth the energy of our own hearts, awakening the spirit of the heart to the great crucible that it is, and its unique capacity to call up the fiery passions of the belly and call down the crystal clarity of the mind and to bring these energies together in a dance in the heart where they are together in a kind of complementary dualism that gives birth to a third and as yet unknown energy not yet seen on the face of this earth because this is the unique genius that you bring and may this dance of heaven and earth yin and yang belly and mind in the heart give birth to your knowing of your true gift you bring to the world and may you find in that very same heart the courage to do something today large or small to bring those gifts into manifestation in the world I give thanks to the spirit energies that have gathered around us here today. May what needs to be said be said and what needs to be heard be heard. 
And may things go forward in a way that is good for all living things. And I give thanks, very, very special thanks to those of you that are helping me to keep the show alive and free and available to all those around the world who are able to access um, the shows through the Internet. The archives, which are now moving into five years of archives of the show, are available free to those who can get to them, thanks to you and your financial donations. So I give thanks to Mary Kay, to Endrick, to Paula, Jade, and Gordon, and Withold, and all of you who have offered um, financially to the show, I give thanks. If you would like to do so, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com, click the support button, and donate any amount, large or small. It would be an interesting day to receive a $5,000 donation from someone, but it's more realistic to imagine that a 1,000 of you could give $5 or the equivalent in your own currency. And so I hope that those of you would not think that what you have to offer is too humble. Every amount, large or small, goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And I thank you deeply for it. And I give thanks to all of you who are unable to donate. Uh, But do something anyway to help the show to grow, to help the teachings to grow in your own life through your actions, through your exploration, through your challenging the ideas and seeing what happens in your life, through your choice simply to practice being grounded. So I give thanks to you for bringing the teachings into your life, for sharing your questions with me, for sharing how the teachings change your life, and for offering ideas for the show. By the way, that stream's trickled down to um, just a little drop. So if you're having ideas about the show as you move into the year, please feel free to send me show ideas. But anyway, thanks to all of you for all the many ways that you help me to keep the show alive um, and vital and... um, relevant to this time. So today we are talking about a very special book that is available out in print called Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. And this is a beginning of several shows I hope to have over the year to begin to challenge and advance and perhaps expand our understanding of evil And in particular, understanding it in a way that we can begin to change our relationship with it um, in the world. That this is a great, uh, I believe it's a great misunderstanding that comes to us from the old story. And I would like to do whatever small part I can to help us to change that conversation. And in particular, to change it in a way that we can become more effective in no longer carrying evil into the world. And becoming uh, people that understand what is necessary um, to live in a different way. And so to help us um, along the way, the author of this new book, Paul Levy, is with us here today. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. And I'm, we're just chuckling because Paul lives like sort of right around the corner. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> It's beautiful. Anyway, from this lovely spring day we're having here in Portland, I want to let those of you who don't know about Paul know that he is a pioneer in the field of spiritual emergence, which is um, an aspect of the big field of shamanism that I think as contemporary people we are not paying quite enough attention to. 
but it's not the topic of today's show. So nonetheless, Paul is a pioneer in this field as well as an innovator in the field of dreaming, both nighttime dreams as well as waking dreams. An intense personal trauma in 1981 initiated a life-changing spiritual awakening in which Paul began to recognize the dreamlike nature of reality. As a result of his initiatory breakthrough, uh, Paul developed a unique and creative vehicle to introduce people to the dreamlike nature of reality that he calls dream, the dreaming up process. The process is based in the realization uh, that the same dreaming mind that dreams our dreams at night is dreaming our life. And he teaches this dreaming up process in awakening the dream groups and assists individuals in his private practice to awaken the dreamlike nature of reality. A Tibetan Buddhist practitioner for over 30 years, he is intimately studied with some of the great spiritual masters of Tibet and Burma. He is the author of The Madness of George Bush, A Reflection on Our Collective Psychosis, and an earlier book on Watiko called Watiko, The Great Epidemic Sickness Known to Humanity. And he's here today to discuss with us his most recent book, Dispelling Watiko, Breaking the Curse of Evil. So to contact Paul, you can go to paul at awakenindthedream.com and that is the same website so www.awakenindthedream.com this interview is also a part of our society of shamanic practitioners series and we thank the ssp for their continued sponsorship and you can find the ssp at shamansociety.org and we are live. If you'd like to call us with your questions today, you can call in at 512-772-1938 or Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site or just email, email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org and I would be happy to read your questions on the air. Um, and no, I haven't got the website updated yet. I'm sorry for those of you who have been emailing me to ask me that question, but I'm on it. So anyway, back to Paul. So welcome, Paul. Um, thank you for joining us here today. In your talks and in your books, you share very openly about your first encounter or possession or however we want to describe it with evil. Um, and could you share with us, which I realize is condensing many years, but could you <laughs> share with us how this experience kind of evolved into this shamanic breakthrough for you. Sure. Yeah, so so it started um, you know, just to create context. Um there were really two channels that that evil came through. One was my father, and I'm not I'm not interested in blaming him or concretizing him as being evil in any way, but he was in a way the conduit through which, you know, this incredible evil came into in a way the in, in, you know, came into my family system. And I'm the only child, so I was really sensitive to it, and I got really traumatized by it, being I was the recipient of his acting out the evil. And then that quickly got me um, entangled in the psychiatric community. And at that point, this was in 81, they had no idea about, you know, a shamanic initiation or a spiritual emergence or anything like that. And so they, of course, what they do, they, they're trained to pathologize. So I immediately became the identified patient. And, you know, they gave me a diagnosis telling me I was going to have this illness for the rest of my life. And so between those two channels of my father and the psychiatric community, what I began to, to experience was that it was as if there was some sort of higher dimensional non-local field 
that was informing whatever was playing out. And to the extent that I would try to shed light on what was happening, it was like, in a way, I couldn't believe the field would almost synchronistically configure itself to seemingly protect the darkness and to protect the abuser. And that was very, very interesting to me because it was like I was getting shown something. And so that's just a really simple answer to how I first got introduced. And, you know, that was in 81, and it's been over three decades now. And it's been a 24-7 job of me just integrating what, you know, this this really direct encounter I was having. And it was not just like with a personal evil that came through a personal psychiatrist or my father, but it was like this transpersonal, this archetypal energy that was actually informing what seemed to be playing out in the outer, in, in the seemingly outer world. And so I've I've really had to go very very deep inwards in myself, and and of course find the correlate for that evil. Because at a certain point I was realizing, oh my God, it's like I'm dreaming. It's like I'm having a dream, and some inner process in me was actually playing out in a way that I just couldn't believe. It was so synchronistic, you know. And so um, was there a particular kind of turning point moment in this long process mm-hmm. of, of um, when you're in that time where you're starting to recognize, oh, wait a minute, this is in me as well. When you, you sort of shifted your relationship to it and, and began to sort of turn things? Right. And, and, you know, I think the turning point was the very, it was almost, I would almost say there was a particular day when I, you know, the initiation really took hold. And that was, so keep in mind, so here I was in intense trauma. And, and I'm sure all of the people like, you know, hearing this understand there's a real correlation between being traumatized or, you know, having a wound and potentially having some form of shamanic, you know, sort of this initiatory experience. Um, and so I was in such deep trauma that I just was going so inwards in meditation, which was the only thing that I found that could heal my suffering and just uh, more and more just watch what was happening. And then one day I got hit by this bolt, this, this, this lightning bolt that not in the sky, but inside of my brain, just a lightning bolt just ignited. And, and then within 24 hours, I got brought to a hospital, to my first psychiatric hospital, because I was acting so out of the ordinary, not like my normal conditioned self. And they brought me by ambulance um, into the hospital, and um, they bring me into the psych ward. And the very first room is this woman, and she doesn't have any sight. Her eyes are clearly blind. And I just, you know, go right up to her like I'm being just led to her. And spontaneously, these words come out of my mouth. And I begin saying to her, all you have to do to see is open your eyes and look. And I keep on repeating those words over and over and over and getting closer, you know, as I'm, I'm standing really close to her, but I'm just staring at her eyes and I'm, I'm just getting closer and closer to her as I'm looking at her eyes. The whole thing took not even a minute and she regained her sight. <clears throat> so then at that moment, like it was choreographed, they took me and they strapped me up on a bed for the night. And um, to make a long story short, the next morning they unstrapped me and they put me in a room. <clears throat> and who's the, other, the only other person in the room is this woman who now has sight. And she's sitting across the table from me and she's smiling from ear to ear and she's not saying a word. And all of a sudden my heart chakra just blossoms 
and I have the understanding of what happened the night before, like, oh, wow, her eyes were physically fine, but inwardly she wasn't letting herself look. Somehow I was the person in the right place at the right time, and I was given the almost like a script to say, and I said my lines, and she was at the point in her process of being ready to heal her blindness. And then she says to me, the only word she ever said to me, she goes, aren't you going to answer the phone call from, and she mentions my father's name. And then within seconds, in walks the nurse saying that my father was on the phone because my parents had just found out that I had had this supposed like psychotic break. So from that experience, I knew that, I mean, it's, it's hard not to know that some deeper process is, is happening through you. And very thankfully, that was the thing that got me through this whole ordeal because um, I kept on having experiences like that that were even more over the top than that. But I, you know, they, what they were teaching me was that, oh, there's some deeper, almost like a higher dimensional process that I'd gotten enlisted in. And that just, that was something that I, you know, I mean, it wasn't even a question of faith. It was just this knowing that something deeper was happening. Beautiful. Okay. So let's, now, talk about Watiko. What, like, what, what was it? Where's, where does that word come from? Sure, sure. And um, that word, the word Watiko is an indigenous, a Native American term that really connotes the spirit of evil. And, um, you know, so it's been in, whether it's the Cree Indians or the Algonquin, the, you know, uh, Ojibwe, uh, Indians and and it really you know has to do with the spirit of evil that can take over a person where they become like a cannibal where they just take and take without giving anything back and what I do what I'm trying to do in my book is pointing out that it's something that really it's not just this mythic term that has to do with these ancient native people but it's something that's playing out in the modern world and it's informing the very inhumanity of our species to itself and that its origin is actually in the psyche and that's really important because that's showing us not only the origin is in the psyche but that's where the healing of it can be too so instead of focusing on the political or the economic you know stuff that's going on and thinking that the cure is out there when you begin to realize what Watiko actually is, that it's a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul that exists in all of us in potential. It actually exists in the collective unconscious, and any of us can fall prey to it at any moment to the extent that we just fall into our unconscious and act it out. And, but it's actually showing us something, that encoded in the evil of Watiko, it's actually potentially, it can help us to actually see the dreamlike nature and to wake up. So um, one of the, the – your book is eminently quote-worthy. <laughs> one of the simple ones says, Watiko is the archetype of evil manifesting and revealing itself through our species. And so, so what would be some just everyday, you know, um, headline kind of Watiko processes you observe – Sure. In, well, just in everyday you know, context, because the native yeah, people it, were talking about us. We're you know we're talking about our ancestors arriving in North America and cannibalizing everything, and 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 seeing in us that we brought this disease. Not that they weren't aware of that disease, but how mm-hmm. we were so deeply infested by it. 
Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. to answer your question, just like think about what happened with the, with the Boston Marathon. That would be an example of Watiko, or the Sandy Hook shootings would be an example of Watiko, or even more on an individual scale, to the extent that any of us are acting out our energy, our creative energy, in a self-destructive or other destructive way, that's a form of Watiko. And so, you know, when you just take a look at the evil that's playing out in whether, it, you know, in the greater body politic of our species or through our like particular relationships with, with people we're close with in our family or even with ourselves, to the extent that we're not really channeling our energy in a creative, constructive way, and on the contrary, it turns destructive, one could say that that, that, it, that process is animated by the Watiko spirit. And part of what I um, appreciate about, well, one, that we have a word that we can use, uh, but this idea that it, you know, that it spreads and it feeds off our choices, our willingness to participate, um, is, is that it, it helps us to recognize um, just like our, our sort of growing education around our traditional, not traditional, but our allopathic disease model. I mean, it's not like we catch a cold or we catch the flu. These, these viruses are, and bacteria are always present in our life. The question is, have we made a series of choices in our life such that on that particular day, you know, it gets a leg up over our immune system's ability to keep it at bay and begins to, to populate and overwhelm. And I think I, I like that, um, this idea of understanding Wetiko similarly, that it's, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's ever-present, um, but it relies on our, our sort of willingness to be food, to allow ourselves to become part of that um, dream basically. Yeah, yeah. It it feeds off of, um, it it, it operates through our our blind spot. So to the extent that we're unaware of it, then we unwittingly become its agent and can easily be taken over by it in such a way that we then act it out in the world while simultaneously it's hiding itself from being seen. Okay, okay. so the thing about Watiko, it's, it's an actual form of this blindness, of a psychic blindness, that not only does it have the belief when somebody's afflicted with it, uh, they believe that they're actually sighted, but in an arrogant way, they, they have a belief that they're more sighted than anybody else. And so, so the thing about Watiko, you see, it works, because it works through the psyche, it works through the projective tendencies of the mind, because we're always projecting. I mean, that's what a dream is. It's a projection, and we're always connecting the dots on the waking ink blot. But the thing about Watiko, it operates through the projective tendencies of the mind, through the blind spot, through the psyche, in such a way that we then think that what we're perceiving objectively exists in a way that's separate from us, which we then react to thinking that we're reacting to the objective reality, when all the while we're reacting to our own mind. And so we actually get caught up in our own mind's projections in such a way that's, a, that's this form of madness, and that's Watiko. I'm I'm just kind of chuckling because I was kind of trying to think of an example that would bring this home. But for me, it's that you you note in the book that isms, what you're talking right. about is any, any form isms. of ism, right? Yeah. So it's like for me, um, 
talking, you know, back when I actually had, you know, jobs in corporate America, you know, talking with men of my, you know, father's generation about this, that, and the other thing, and them looking at me, and these are good men, looking at me, who, who certainly feel I should be at work working, but looking me right in the eye and telling me, well, there's no sexism anymore. That's done. Right. <laughs> but I'm still only getting paid 66% on the dollar, but there's no sexism anymore. You know, but it's that, right, right. that good person who, who can't see. It's, it's not these people that are, you know, insanely out of their minds. Do, it's not Enrons. I mean, it is Enrons. Yeah, yeah, but, no, it, it totally, it, it can be that, but it's also just ordinary good people like you're yeah. saying. You know, yeah. and the thing is, you see, the thing about what Tico, when I say it operates through the blind spot, think about it as being this shape-shifting spirit in a way that actually puts us on. And putting us on has a double meaning of putting us on like a suit of clothes and also putting us on means fooling ourselves in such a way that by shape-shifting, it assumes our form. And if we don't see what's happening, we then unconsciously identify with it. And then its thought forms or, or you know, whatever um, a belief system that we're holding that are actually inspired by Watiko, we just assume are ours. And so it's like a tapeworm. It's like a psychic, like this virus or a parasite of the mind or a tapeworm. And think about what a tapeworm is. You get a tapeworm in your body and it secretes chemicals where you start to crave food that feeds the tapeworm. So it grows bigger. And meanwhile, as the host, it's killing you. And, and the whole while you're believing you're actually just feeding yourself. So that's, that's a whole other way of, of describing what Tico. Well, and you actually believe your body is honestly giving you valid messages about what you should be eating. Yeah. But it's really totally. the tapeworm. <laughs> right. Because the thing about, yeah, the thing about what Tico, when you're possessed by it, by definition, you don't know you're possessed by it. Okay, you know, it's that whole other way of saying it operates through your unconscious. Now, the thing which which really is just the most amazing thing about Watiko, so it operates in the psyche, through the unconscious, in the collective unconscious, and yet somehow it synchronistically will manifest and express itself through the medium of the outside world. It's as if it somehow is able to extend. So here's this inner disease of the soul that somehow is seemingly able to extend itself out in the seemingly outer world so as to configure events in the seemingly outer world which actually express an inner condition. Okay, and so that's one of the things. It just dissolves the boundary between the inner and the outer, and that's why one of the things it's showing us, and it's an expression of, is that this is a dream, that we're having a mass shared dream. So that's what I mean, that encoded in the Watiko virus is some form of not only its own medicine and, and, and like an antidote for its venom, but it actually is showing us something that's helping us to wake up. And we're going to come back to that I, because I want to stick with one thing you share beautifully in the book. Because of this whole thing of how it creates this blindness, mm -hmm. we can learn to notice the outer world. But you also talk about, you know, like sometimes I can't notice myself in the whole complex of the addiction or the whatever it is, but mm -hmm. I can see the result. Mm -hmm. So, so like the result of being caught up in this is that um, it actually, because our energy is being caught up in playing out the Watiko process, it's not present. 
for our ability to love and to grow and to evolve. So if you're, you know, working, working, working at that and not getting anywhere, your, your, your heart <laughs> needs to kind of say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe I'm blind and caught up in this in a Witiko process. You know, maybe that my yeah, energy is yeah. going and, and I'm not noticing because we, we, can, we can see the evidence of it in our life sort of left in our wake. Um, and you, you talk about it in terms of it, it inhibits personal growth. It destroys or limits our uh, innate potential, uh, curtails freedom, fragments or disintegrates the personality diminishes the quality of interpersonal relationships and creates divisiveness within the whole family. And so mm-hmm. while we, we may be blind in the moment to our participation in it, we can look in what's being created, particularly in our wake, you know, cause we don't ever think we're doing it, but you mm-hmm. look at the evidence and go, Hmm, this looks suspicious. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the thing about Watiko, it inspires, you know, I think we're all familiar to the extent that we act out any form of habitual pattern or addictive behavior or whether, you know, we're all in some form of trauma. And the thing which is interesting about trauma, and, it, you know, that's a way of describing Watiko, is that the way we try to heal from our trauma actually creates the very trauma that we're trying to heal from in a self-generating, self-perpetuating feedback loop. And, you know, so what you were just describing, Christina, that's in a way, yeah, that's like a symptom. That's an expression of being taken over by, by what to go in such a way that our creative energy, which should be, you know, which is potentially, you know, we can access for love and for expressing our, our, our you know, infinite creativity and, and spontaneity and all that stuff, all of a sudden it gets enclosed in such a way that it feeds this this endlessly self-perpetuating feedback loop that when when you amplify and unfold that over time it it you know it's just, it's a total self-destructive process and that's getting shown you see the thing one of the ways to see Watiko not only is it an inner disease inside of us but you could see its actual footprints through the macrocosm through the seemingly outer world so here we are as a species and what are we doing we're actually destroying the biosphere, the life support system of the planet that we depend on for our existence, we're destroying it. And that's, that's, a, that's this reflection of how the Watiko bug, when it gets in us and, and we don't see it, it actually takes us down. It actually can destroy us and drive us to suicide. Mass suicide. Mass suicide, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I know. And so, so let's let's kind of return then to this, um, the way in which Watiko and and evil actually, mm-hmm. if we are willing to see ourselves in it or it in ourselves or however, find okay. So let me back up one step. Mm-hmm. You you made a you do a beautiful job in the book talking about the distinction between being caught up in this process and thus participating in it, that it doesn't make us concretize us as evil. Mm-hmm. So why don't you say a little bit more yeah. about that? Because you know, sure. other, otherwise we're saying everybody's just evil, and that's not what yeah, we're yeah, saying. Yeah, no, and that's an important distinction. So say if you see whether we're talking about ourselves or somebody else who you're seeing – 
you know, and say they're at, at a given moment in time, like any of us could fall into this, you know, say they're, they're really taken over by their unconscious in such a way that they're embodying Watiko and they're acting out. And uh, so, you know, it's a very seductive, like this tendency to just concretize the person and say, oh, well, they're evil. And um, I point out that's a big mistake because being evil, the quality of evil is an archetypal quality. And we are people, we're persons. And we don't want to conflate the two. So it's important to make the distinction, oh, here's a person, whether it's me or the other person or whoever, that actually is at that, at this moment, I'm perceiving them to be an instrument for this higher dimensional archetypal energy called evil to come through them. But I don't want to solidify them or conflate them as being evil, because to do that... You see, then that's an expression that we ourselves have fallen under the spell of Watiko because the thing about Watiko, it feeds on our tendency to create polarization and separation. So if we think that somebody out there has Watiko and we don't, that very point of view is an expression that we've fallen under its thrall. Precisely. And and the thing about this... It, so in, in my particular sort of flavor of shamanic teaching, we work with helping spirits, but we also work directly with archetypes. And we kind of treat them initially, at least, as helping spirits, just as teachers. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and so part of what we're wanting, we're wanting to do intentionally is to, to clear our personal issues such that we can be tools for the teacher when the teacher wants to move through, or the healer when the healer wants to move through. Like your story with the blind woman. Or no longer blind woman, you know that mm-hmm. that we that we become the means by which the archetypal energies that need to be present in the moment can 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 flow into the moment. It's exactly like your story that you told, and and this whole thing about Watiko or this archetype of evil is it's exactly the same process. It's just an archetype we would prefer to not be the channel by which it <laughs> flows into the world. I mean, archetypes no, are archetypes. Yeah, and that's and that's totally true. And just going back to something, that's why I talk about that. The thing about um, what the Watiko disease is that it's a form of like being blind, because to the extent that we don't look at you know what's happening and whether you call it evil or Watiko or whatever, and if we're actually kind of having a contraction against looking at it or or being having avoidance in looking at it, that looking away, that being an avoidance is feeding the very evil. And yet, on the other hand, if we actually become overly fascinated with the evil, well, that also can be potentially feeding it. But the third option is to see, is to actually see how this, you know, this psychic germ operates or evil or whatever you want to call it, to actually see it and how it's non-local, which means it's both operating in the world and reflecting, you know, something in ourselves. And then as sovereign beings, we have the choice of how do we want to invest our attention? And then we have the choice of, oh, I, okay, I see this evil energy. I don't want to become fascinated by it. I don't, I don't want to, 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 to be in avoidance. I can actually invest my psychic energy in creating the world I want to live in. And that's what's, that, that's what's available to us. I was so hoping we would come to this today because this is a very powerful part of the book, I think, that exactly the piece you just said. And that, that whole um, expression of, you know, if we are in denial or in indulgence, you know, we're not in balance. And that, and that those two places are, are both places of excess and that this place in the middle is where we find our sovereignty and establish our sovereignty and, and that we can um, – 
And then in every moment, no matter how out of control we are in one or the other, we can choose to step back to the center. It might yeah, not be pretty. <laughs> right. No, that's true. And, that, and that's why in one, in one section of the book, I talk about what is, what is the source, the, the origin of the Watiko virus. And, you know, and some people think, oh, something happened, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever. And that all might be true. And yet I point out that the Watiko epidemic, because it is, it's a psychic epidemic, you know, and um, that it's actually getting created in this, in each and every moment, and that we're complicit in it. We're, to the extent we don't see it, to the extent we're not dealing with our own shadow and not intimately familiar with our evil and owning it and, and, and all that and taking responsibility for it, we are then colluding with the evil in, in the macrocosm, and we're actually then one of the agents. It's like we're a secret agent whose secret is secret even to ourselves in the sense that then we're unwittingly you know, helping to recreate the Watiko bug in this moment. Precisely, because, okay, even if it did originate, like you said, in some great event, who knows when, mm-hmm. had right. there been no food for it, it would have died off. Right, right. I mean, right. We, this is we the are the food. Yeah, we, we are the food. That's such a perfect metaphor that it, it feeds on our unawareness of it. And that's why, you know, once we begin to see it, and not just see it, but, you know, that's why the, in the, in the, towards the end of the book I talk about the importance of finding the name for it. Like in mythologies, in fairy tales, they'll always talk about the profound importance of finding the name for a demon. And Lotico is analogous to a demon. When you find the name for it, it takes away its power. And so, and then, that's kind of why I'm so happy that we're even having a discussion like this, because being that Lotico is a collective psychosis, and here we're in the middle of this unbelievable, like, collective psychosis of titanic proportions, and hardly anybody's even talking about it. But to actually begin to see what's happening and to actually find the name for it um, is, you know, and, and, you know, is one way of saying it is to shed light on it such that it takes away its, its power. And then not only does it have no power over us, but then that power that we were giving it, we then access for ourselves. So there's a place in the book um, where you're talking about this and then you're taking it one step further um, Mm -hmm. because the naming piece really is about claiming something and shedding light on the situation. It's kind of like the coming out of blindness part. Mm -hmm. And it's not enough to then just sort of floodlight my great bright light on that wetiko over there in the corner in my, even if it's in myself and just as if i'm somehow exposing some truth and then call it good that that you're really talking about the process is about embracing that wetiko energy that darkness that whatever and and illuminating discovering the light that is present within it it's like freeing Something, And then we sort of circle back to what you were saying in the beginning of the show is how there's actually something in this evil for us, in our own evil for us. And that yeah. In, yeah. in our denial of that process, we miss that gift. Even yeah, in yeah. evil, there's a gift. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, one of the things that I'm, the whole book, I'm contemplating, what is the place of evil in the cosmos? And, um, you know, is it just an aberration and an error, or is it part of God, or not part of God, or part of us, or whatever? 
And, um, you know, all these wisdom traditions from the Gnostics to alchemy to the Kabbalah to Buddhism to, to mystical Christianity, they all point out that encoded in, in evil, in the darkness, are like these, these sparks of light. And we ourselves are the ones, it's our mission to somehow discover the light that's like encoded in the darkness and to free that light. And so, you know, one way of thinking about this is like the idea of, oh, we all want to become awakened, and, um, you know, the, however you would say it. And the idea being that, well, if you, if you really are, you know, have enlightenment, it doesn't mean anything at all unless it makes, um, you know, uh, uh, unless it makes the darkness conscious, unless it helps you see the dark. And so, so somehow what, you know, what this means is that it's by going into the darkness and on the psychological dimension that has to do with, you know, going into the shadow, but just really investigating into the darkness where you actually, um, you know, find the light in a way that's hidden there. And then that's in a way, you know, one of the underlying themes of the book that encoded in this incredible evil of Huatico it's actually showing us something about ourselves that's most important for us to know. And one way of understanding that is that when you see this as a dream, as a mass shared dream that we're all having together, and if we're unconscious of something, it's going to get dreamed up in a way that appears negative and appears evil. But it's a part of our wholeness. And yet it's actually showing us something about ourselves that we're unconscious of. And the whole key is when we have the recognition of what it's showing us, then all of a sudden, then our consciousness expands towards waking up. And all of that is being given to us by Watiko. One other way of saying this, think about like a typical um, sort of like a germ, like a virus. A virus will mutate um, when we develop new anti, you know, we'll have antibiotics and it'll start to mutate and we have to develop newer ones. But the thing about the Watiko virus, it forces us to mutate. It actually forces us to evolve. So what's interesting is, is I, I, I hear you saying, which makes complete sense. So here's, here's this Watiko virus that is manifest both in our inner world and our outer world. Mm-hmm. And this sort of there's this place of balance then in my in my outer choices my choices of how to be in the world mm-hmm. i want to choose to not be food right so i want to live mm-hmm. in such a way that i am not easy prey food for this virus and at the same time i could get rigid in this perfect way of living such that i am not food for watiko which in and of itself would then make me food <laughs> Right, exactly. So I have to balance this understanding of essentially living in the world in a good way, right? Noticing what's in my wake, noticing, you know, am I using my creativity? Anyway, my point is there's this outer piece of choosing how we live so that we tend to not be easy prey for food. But then the inner piece is recognizing even if I really get the hang of that and get really good at living in a good way, there is always the possibility for this shadow piece within. In my experience, it's actually by choosing to live in a good way that it brings us to abilities such that we can face what we couldn't actually face within before and so there's the outer piece 
living in a way so that we're not food. But there's also the inner piece of being willing always to look, never being in denial that I'm so whatever, that I couldn't find yet another place of blindness, yet another place of deafness inside of myself. And to, yep. to embrace that in such a way that it um, exposes it, um, I think the world is in, involute. Anyway, basically, like, like breaking open a nice juicy peach and exposing the pit, you know, breaking that evil open in such a way that I can see what is at the heart of it. Because that's the gift for me that allows me then to awaken. Yeah, and well, then, the thing, uh-huh. Well, and then put that into practice in my life and just keep living my life, you know, just... Right, right. Well, what you're saying, Christina, it makes me think the thing about Watiko, it can, it can um, in a way, um, subsume even the healthiest impulse to feed its pathology, you know, if we're not careful. And when we realize, oh, my God, that any of us, you know, including and particularly myself, can fall prey to Watiko at any given moment if we just fall asleep or act out our unconscious or whatever, that cultivates this humbleness. And having the humility like that, that's the inoculation against the germ, you know, as compared to thinking, oh, I'm really awake and I'm really free and other people have Watiko but not me. No, that's, that's the very point of view that makes you a total conduit for Watiko to act itself out. And, um, and the thing I, I also want to not forget to say, because, you know, it's so, um, you know, the thing about Watiko, it literally, it's like going to the gym and, and like helping us to develop these 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 muscles, these psychic muscles, it really helps us to work out and to develop parts of ourselves that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And here's the, here's the rub, though. If we fight against Watiko, then we've already lost because it thrives on polarization. That's its signature. And, but what it's, what it's pointing at in us is that there, you know, the way to vanquish Watiko is to get in touch with the part of us that can't be possessed by it, that's invulnerable to its effects. And that's the self. That's in Buddhism, they call it, you know, the Buddha nature, the true nature. It has all these different names. And, but it's the same. It's that part of us. That's who we are. And that's, you know, that's what this is all about, that, you know, from the dreaming point of view, when you ask, well, why would we dream up this incredible, this, this um, you know, pathology that's so virulent and malignant, from the dreaming point of view, it's because, oh, we're not in touch with who we are, and this is actually our initiation to actually show us who we are. Okay? So let's, uh, we are already running out of time, so let's sort of shift gears a little bit and talk about, okay, so we, 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 we understand it, so how would we begin, how would a listener listening today begin to take what they're hearing into like a first action in their life what if they say okay i'm listening to paul and i don't want to be food (laughs) but they're right you know we're right in the middle of a life whatever's happening is happening where would someone begin like what would be a first thing someone could do to begin to take what we're talking about into action in their life yeah and i would you know the image i mean you know first off that's not an easy question to answer because you know it's like whoa how how you know what does one do but the image that comes up is just to, you know, to really enter the present moment because the way to really dispel Watiko is to enter the present moment and to really just watch and to be present with what's happening in your, in your mind body. 
And, and then to see at each and every moment, we have a choice, you know, and, um, you know, at, at certain points it might not be so clear, but at other points it becomes crystal clear that, you know, we at, at, you know, at whatever moment can choose in a way that's investing in our imprisonment, so to speak, or we can actually, you know, say, for example, if we're feeling really imprisoned or contracted or caught, we can like actually think that that's reality, that particular thought form. And, and if we hold that point of view that that's real and that's solid, then we're investing that thought form with the reality to, to actually to then become our experience. Um, if I can just take a step back for a second, the thing yeah. about what he, oh, it, 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 it actually taps into our genius for creating reality in such a way that it turns us against, it turns it against ourselves so that we enslave ourselves instead of expressing our genius in a way where we create love and, and just freedom. And, um, but then the other option, when we see, say, if we're feeling all caught up and, you know, contracted, and like I was just describing, instead of, you know, seeing that as being real, and then we create that experience, and then we have evidence. As soon as we hold that point of view that, oh, wow, this really is, you know, um, I'm, I'm really imprisoned, I'm really caught, I'm really wounded. And, you know, similar in a dream. If you're in a dream and you hold a viewpoint, the dream shapeshifts and offers all the evidence to confirm your viewpoint, and then which entrenches you even further in your perspective in a, in a, in a self-perpetuating feedback loop that you've actually created. The opposite of that is if you see through if, at whatever experience you're having, whether it's one of great freedom or one of incredible contraction and feeling imprisoned, if you recognize, oh, that's just, it's just a display of my own mind, it's empty, it actually is not separate from my own consciousness, then all of a sudden the, the part of you that's seeing that is free of it. And then you're not bound by it. So at each and every moment, we're given this choice of how do we relate to, our, oh, to the manifestation of our own mind. So that's really the way in. And so there's, a, there's kind of two, two things that have come up today on the show that I think are important. So one is the freedom, noticing freedom or the lack thereof. And then the other is recognizing that, you know, with freedom also comes well, the sovereignty is always present, but people are often afraid to use it, right? So there's, you know, that we have this freedom and this sovereignty and this potential for it, acting in it in any moment. We just have to notice. Yeah, and the thing, you see, this, that brings up the thought, the thing about Watiko, ultimately speaking, it doesn't even exist. It's not even like there's this objective, like, you know, pathology or virus that we have to be scared of, and yet it can destroy our species, and, you know, that's pointing at something. It's pointing at, first off, the incredible power that all of us have that we might not be aware of. And it's pointing at, you see, the thing about Watiko, it can't take our power from us, but it can trick us into giving our power away to it. Precisely. Okay? You know? and can so, you yeah, say that part, again? That's really important. Say sure, sure. So the thing about Watiko is that it cannot take our power from us but it can trick us to give our power away to it, okay? And that's how it operates. And when you see through that, you see, it, it absolutely hates when you see through that if you imagine it's some sort of, you know, like autonomous being, because when you see through it, then it's, it's unemployed. It's out of work. Then it just dissolves back into the emptiness out of which it arose. You know, it's... it's um... It, it, there's there are definite parallels when you when you're in 
you know, learning from indigenous practitioners, shamanic practitioners about working with energies like possession and et cetera. And, and, and why, why do people, um, why is one person possessed and not another? And why this possession and not that one and all that, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it always tracks back to that the, that the person essentially had an opening present from their own state of being in the moment that allowed that energy in so that right. there was that that p- peace inside of themselves that was essentially matched the pattern that was um coming in and that the that the the way to become someone who isn't easily taken over is to notice those inner places and to transform them you know to to pay attention to them to find the essence inside of them and and um unwrap them or evolve um that whole the blossoming you know letting that energy blossom to find what's within and to integrate those energies in our life and it's not um it's not this um you know right now i feel like this idea of enlightenment you know run off to the amazon and do ayahuasca and become enlightened has got this real sort of macho quality to it right now and and in my experience it's profoundly humbling Mm-hmm. You know, when we really come to one of those awakenings, it's very humbling. And I just, you know, it's not like I want to go out and tell the world how fabulous I am. It's like I kind of want to sit still and be quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Just as I hear you talk, it's making me um, think like, you know, one of the things that's really, really helpful about how to deal with this, because we're all in the soup together, we're all dealing with our own Watiko energies in whatever way, because it pervades the field, it pervades the collective unconscious. And there's something about connecting with other people who are also awakening to the wilds of Watiko or to, you know, whatever you call it. And there's a way of sort of, one could say, of hanging out, of conspiring. It's what I call to, con- it's, um, to conspire, to co-inspire. And we're in such a way where we activate the, um, the collective genius of all of us where, you know, um, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There's, because it's contagious. When, when we have a particular state of mind, we, we influence each other. And when we're in uh, a particular community um, where people are really asleep and are reinforcing, you know, because the way Watiko works is, is you know, through the psyche. And, and so people who are taken over by Watiko to whatever degree, they reinforce each other's madness and they feed off of and into each other's madness. And that's what a collective psychosis is. But the antidote to that is that when you hang out with, you know, like in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll call it the Sangha, the community of fellow awakening beings which is a beautiful translation of the word bodhisattva. And the idea being that when you hang out with other people who are also awakening, that becomes contagious. And then it's what I call you can dream ourselves awake. You can help each other to, you know, to really increase or to stabilize our, our um, you know, whatever the, the part of us that has lucidity in a way that helps all of us. And I feel like that piece, you know, that we we um, re, re reestablish, reaffirm daily that piece in our choice of who to be with and how to be with them, but also in our practice, because uh, like a daily altar practice or or a, a practice of prayer or meditation, because we're also doing the same thing with. Um, 
are helping spirits, however, whether we want to think of them as deities or ancestors or helping spirits, who also reinforce that in us, you know, calling in all that is sort of good, true, and beautiful to reflect back to us our own qualities, that we, we, we can reinforce that community in ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. And that's essentially what we're doing in our practices is reinforcing that in the invisible world. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. And and then I would even say that 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 boundary between the ordinary reality and the non-ordinary reality more and more becomes dissolved. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's really interesting because that's when you begin to realize, oh my God, this is a dream. You see, you know, going back to the beginning of this interview when I was talking about having this awakening and being hospitalized, one way of describing that the experience that I was having was I was re- I was beginning to realize that this is a dream, not like as a metaphor, not that it's like a dream. But stuff began happening in my life. Like I told the blind woman story, that was I was a minor experience compared to other stuff that happened after that. I I, I just you know you know it's not that I talk about the other stuff because you just know not to talk about that stuff. But stuff began happening that could only happen in dreams that were completely right. physically impossible. And so right. that's what's actually potentially really being shown to us is that we are having a mass shared dream, and when more and more of us have that realization, we can connect with each other. And and actually put our awakening um, consciousness together and change the dream, and that's evolution, you know. And all of that is based on the insight that we're not separate from each other, and that's what Watiko was showing us that we're actually interconnected and interdependent, and that's the snap out of the separate self, and then that's the that's what in essence all of this is about. And that is a beautiful. Uh, place to end the show. <laughs> that was lovely. Oh. Um, Paul, is there anything else you would like to say? Are you are welcome to just leave it right there. It was lovely. Yeah, sure. Uh, the one final thought when I said that, and I, I, the only thought that was left in my brain was like, well, the <laughs> energetic expression of that inside of the interconnectedness is 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 you know having compassion, and that that that's you know so what that means is that the way to really help our, us to deepen our awakening is to even more and more cultivate that open heart of compassion. So that would be like my final offering. Thank you, Paul. And Paul, thank you for your eternal offering of your, um, of your work, of your books. And I want to encourage people to um, go buy it, read it, do it. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Christina. It's called Dispelling with Tico, Breaking the Curse of Evil. And you can get it anywhere. I always encourage people mm-hmm. to get it at Powell's. Um, and Paul's um, website, if you'd like to hear other interviews with Paul, read his essays, or even get on his mailing list, um, is awakenindthedream.com. One word, right? Awakenindthedream.com. Right. Awakenindthedream.com. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. I, I've just had a great time, so thank you. And I'd like to give thanks to the ancestors for gathering around us here today for the earth below the sky above, and to the heart that unites us all. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.